Hello, and welcome to the Faith Church Podcast channel. We exist to reach people and connect them to God and others. If you'd like more information about Faith Church or would like to schedule a visit sometime, visit our website at www.igotofaith.com. We can only do what we do because of the generosity of our Faith Church family. If you'd like to contribute to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at www.igotofaith.com and hit the giving tab. Or you can text the amount of your contribution to 256-483-4991. Both of these options will send you to a safe and secure server. Your giving is much appreciated. Now, get ready as our Connect Pastor Adam Gooch brings us part five of our series, Bad Girls of the Bible. What's up, Faith Church? Everybody good today? We good? Man, it has been a fun day, and we're going to shut it down. This is either the third, like, time's a charm, or it's third strike. I don't really know where I'm at, um, but either way, right, we're good after this. I'm out. Uh, my name is Adam, like Pastor Ryan said. I am really, really excited to hang out with you guys today um, as we shut down this series um, that we have called Bad Girls of the Bible. How many of y'all like some bad girls, right? It's been an amazing series, man. We have had a blast um, looking at some really, really cool stories of how they impact our lives. Um, but we're glad that you're here. Has everybody had a good week? Like, I've had an amazing week this week. Like, you, some weeks just stand out more than others. We have had some beautiful weather this week. Um, it's been sunny all day. We've kind of got to hit the water. We're kind of, I've got my red tan on. I've been working on that. Um, some of y'all get brown. I don't know why I'm just getting red. Uh, we're working on that. True story. Um, people don't believe me, but I, I promise you, in front of God and all of you, this happened yesterday. All right? My wife and I, we have a pool. And uh, so we were out hanging out with the kids and stuff, but uh, we laid on rafts in the pool for so long yesterday, right, that we were laying there, and like at first we noticed that there's like, like two or three buzzards that are like swarming around like our, ho- like our property area, you know, I'm like, that's weird, like I, I just like mowed the lawn the day before, so I knew there was not like anything like dead, like around, you know, like my property or anything, and so we're laying there, and hanging out, you know, and like we just kept noticing, we're kind of having this on-calling conversation that like more and more buzzards keep showing up. At one time, true story, there are 12 buzzards circling my house, right? And I'm like, babe, like what? Something is dead. Like I don't know what it could be. And honestly, we're laying there and they keep getting lower and lower, like circling. And I, it finally hit us like, babe, I think they think we're dead. <laughs> like I think... I think they, like, we have laid in this one spot for so long without moving. I think they think we're just, like, floaters in the water. And, like, they're in, so, like, literally, we stood up. And we're like, all right, maybe it's time to go in. Like, that's the cue. Six hours and buzzards swarming your head. You're like, all right, I'm not dead. Uh, so we got up. And seriously, as soon as we stood up, they flew off and, like, we're gone and, like, never to be seen again. Um, so that's a good day. Like, hashtag winning. If I lay in one spot in a pool long enough that they think I'm dead, like, I'm in loving that day. Uh, so it's been a beautiful, beautiful week, man. If you love sports, this past week has been a blast. Um, it started, how many of y'all ever played softball before? Any ladies, guys play? How many of y'all watched game one of the Women's College World Series? I'm like, Listen, that was legit, right? You talk about some bad girls. Those girls are bad, y'all, 17 innings. They played like two and a quarter games in one night. To get, it was unbelievable. Every time one of them would score, the other one would come back. I finally got to the point, I was like, I don't care who wins, but somebody's got to so this dude can go to sleep because I'm sleepy, but it didn't matter. So they went until midnight, and they played so many innings, but it was amazing. Uh, we've got the Stanley Cup Finals. Any hockey fans out there? You're obviously not from Alabama. Y'all are like, Yeah! 
Um, the funny thing, and I love it, it's just whatever. If we had a hockey team in Alabama, maybe I'd be that way. But anywhere you go in Tennessee right now, you know what y'all see everywhere? Predator shirts. And the only thing I can figure out is that's because the volunteers are so bad that they just wear, they're like, you know what, forget college football. We just, we're doing hockey now. That's our thing. Um, so if you're a hockey fan, if you dig the Predators, man, like they got a big game tonight, go support them. They're going to throw some fish probably on the ice, and that's weird, but I don't know. It's hockey. Um, so that's cool. Uh, we got the NBA Finals going down. Any NBA fans? Basketball? See, I, I'm a firm believer, like the 90s era of basketball, that was my, that was my jam. Um, but these teams, the Golden State Warriors, the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, they're a lot of fun to watch. The Warriors will make it rain up in there at any given point. Now, LeBron James is just a freak of a man to watch play the sport. Um, so it's a lot of fun seeing those guys. So um, Pastor Steve is actually in Ohio. He went back home to see some family. Um, and it's kind of odd, the timing. Um, he got back to Cleveland, and um, all of a sudden the Cavaliers decided to score 86 points and a half. And so I think somewhere, Mike, he thinks he's the special sauce. Like, like Pastor Steve came home, and now the Cavaliers win a game. Uh, but the unfortunate part um, is that now the Cavaliers had to leave Cleveland, and now they got to go back to California. So they kind of just delayed the inevitable um, at this point. Um, but don't tell Pastor Steve I said that, um, or we'll have issues. Um, but tomorrow night, more than likely, I'm just believing, I just think they're going to shut it down in Cali. And um, on average, I think when you see it, each finals game, um, the NBA profits like $25 million. Um, so they would have lost a whole lot of money if that game would have ended in Cleveland. Uh, but I love watching the game because how many of y'all know those dudes make it look really, really easy? Like Steph Curry, like if this is half court and like he just steps over and just launches that baby in, like the percentage is unbelievable, and that is a very difficult thing to do, but yet he makes it look so easy. And then you've got LeBron, you've got the dudes that can, like, take it to the rim and throw it down with authority. And, like, I have never dunked a day in my life because I'm not built. I'm built for power. I ain't built for speed or agility, right? Um, that's just the way God made me, and I, I'm okay with that. Um, but they make it look easy. So I love watching the NBA Finals. I love watching all that. But you know what I love watching more? than people who do things that make it look really, really easy. I like watching people attempt to do things and completely failing at it and completely blowing it up and, like, busting their face. Like, anybody else? So in honor of the NBA Finals, I want you to take a look at these dudes that missed it completely. Watch this video. This is inner LeBron right here. Yep. Oh, no, no. Oh. <laughs> You saw the breath leave his lungs right there. I feel like Brandon Smith. I don't know who she feels like, but they ain't feeling very good. That dude's in a car lot. Did y'all notice that? Some like Corvettes. Like, what are you doing? I thought for sure that was gonna end in a face plant. This dude's a prophet, y'all. Bam! I love it. Be sick if I hit this. It's gonna be sick one way or the other. Boom! Oh my god! Oh my god! Watch this. He got tricked. Ah! <laughs> this is just stupid. I don't even know what this guy's doing. Ah! 
Bam! That was in slow-mo too. Watch this. This is cool. But that's not, but. <laughs> this is good. Dad's like, hey honey, I got skills. Watch this. Oh. Mm. <laughs> I like this dude because he breaks something at his friend's house. Watch. And then he runs home. He's like, I'm out. We'll see you. Listen, if you don't laugh at people hurting themselves and hurting others in that con, that's just funny. I don't care if you're on a skateboard, if people think they can like motocross, uh, parkour is like a new thing. Y'all seen all this parkour stuff? Like dudes jumping from like building like rail to rail and they like straddle that bad boy and I laugh because it is so funny to me. Those guys, see they had this idea that like, man, this is going to be dope. Watch this. That one dude's even like, hey, this is going to be sick until he smashes his kid in the head with a basketball, right? Like, it's funny when we see that on a screen and when we see it in context of like somebody's playing basketball, doing goofy things. Um, but what I want to talk about today is the other side when, while it's funny on screen, those types of situations aren't as funny when they play out in real life, right? Like some of you are here and like it's easy to laugh at somebody busting it trying to to dunk a basketball, but like at some point in your life, there was something that you thought was a great idea that you thought was going to bring you joy and happiness that when you went through with it, what you ended up finding out was all it did was it hurt you. Or maybe worse than that, maybe it did, it hurt somebody else. And, and it's not just so much as a, a brief basketball to the head, but there are like long-standing consequences of the actions that you took, and it, it gets real. And the bad girl that we're going to talk about today finds herself in a situation very much like that, where she did some things and she's kind of went through some acts that, that she thought was going to bring her joy, that she thought um, would bring her fulfillment, and that she thought would, would kind of get her to where she wanted to be. And ultimately what she sees happen is she sees that it brings a lot of pain upon herself and it brings a lot of pain on the people around her. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn. We're going to be in the book of John, chapter 8. Uh, we'll start reading in verse 1. Um, a little bit of setup before we get into that. Um, at the end of chapter 7, basically Jesus has been um, teaching at the temple, right? So Jesus is having church, and he is talking to the people. And at the end um, of chapter 7, it tells us that um, Jesus kind of shut it down. The message was done, and it says everybody else went home, right? Because normal people go home after church, right? Everybody else went home except when we pick up in John chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible is very specific to tell us that Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Now that's very important. It says, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. It says, he was, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Now, time out. As you look through history and you look through the scholars and the way they break down the original language, most scholars will tell you that they believe this woman was either barely clothed or completely naked, okay? I don't care what denomination you go to. I don't care what the name of the church is on the sign. When the naked lady gets dragged into church, things get real, right? All y'all jokers that are asleep, like you wake up all of a sudden, right? Like, oh, now you're listening to the preacher because the naked woman showed up, right? Now, I'm not going to use that as a sermon illustration today, but I want you to kind of get yourself in the mindset 
that literally this, it was an atmosphere much like this, except I'm definitely not Jesus, and you should be really thankful for that. But they're teaching, and then out of the blue, this crowd of people drags a naked woman in front of all of you and throws her down in front of all the crowd, in front of Jesus, and this is what they do. They say, teacher, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And the Bible tells us that they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him, right? Because they knew this is what the law says. So if you agree with it, right, then that means that you're not being very grace-driven. You're not forgiving like you keep telling all these people you are. However, if Jesus comes in and says, no, we can't stone her, then they think they've got him on the other angle because then Jesus is just like them. Right? So they're attempting to trap Jesus. They're always trying to run this side game, right? These Pharisees. And yet Jesus stooped down when they said this to him, and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Moving on, it says they kept demanding an answer. So, like, Jesus out the gate is ignoring them, right? Jesus, the law says stoner. What do you say? And he just, he straight up just starts writing and ignores them. But they were persistent. They said, listen, we are going to demand you give us an answer. So Jesus stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then Jesus stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. Now when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. It says, Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And the woman responds, She said, No, Lord. So Jesus said, Well, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Now, this is a very, very famous story in the Bible that's taught many different times. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story being taught in some way. But today, there's, there's kind of three things that I want to take some time out. There's three things I want to focus on, three things that I think we see in this context, right? The first thing that I want to take some time to look at is our problem. How many of y'all got some problems, right? I got problems. You got, we all got problems. Let's not pretend that we don't. And as you look through this passage, I think there's three problems that we see. The first thing I think we see is the problem of sin. Now, in church today, right, people like me, right, places like this, it's kind of gotten to this point that we don't like using this word. It's much much cooler, it's much more hip for me to get up here and say, listen, she messed up or she made a mistake or you know what, she just, it was... All these things, it's just her struggle. But see, what the Bible says is what Jesus himself said was, listen, this is sin. Nowhere in this story does it um, affirm or say that it's okay what this woman was doing. This woman was caught in a heinous, horrible act. It was a sinful act. And Jesus says that it was so. When we see sin, I think we got to do what Jesus did, and we got to call it sin because it's not okay. It's not that he just glazed over it. We look at sin, and we see it's sin. That's the truth. 
If you're living a life of sin, if you are living, it doesn't have to be in adultery. If you are living your life in any way that contradicts the will of God for your life, the Bible says you have been separated from him because of sin. Now, we all have it. We're all living in sin. That's the truth. But here's the deal. We don't just stop at the truth. That's what the religious leaders wanted to do. They wanted to stop at truth. But Jesus doesn't just stop at truth. Take a look at John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, what word comes first here? Grace, right? I think there's a reason that grace comes before truth. Because you can't camp out on truth until you get to grace. That's really, really important. In our world today, there are people, as they live their life, as they interpret Scripture and they go through um, all these things, they, they would love to just get to grace and just stop. And they camp out on grace and that means anything goes, right? Jesus is a gracious God. He's going to forgive you. He loves you. Don't worry about it. Everything is good. I know you're sinning, but that's fine. Jesus forgives, and that's true. But it doesn't stop there. You see, people who are all about the grace of God, and they never make it to the truth of God, those people are called hyper-liberals, right? Anything goes like, that's the hippie movement. Hippie Jesus. Jesus is all love. Man, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Hyper-liberals, all grace, no truth. On the other side, there are people that love to camp out on truth and never even get to the point of grace. We call those people idiots. <laughs> because think about it. As you look at your life and the life you live, you don't have to be honest with me, but you need to be honest with yourself Look at your life and the way that you live, the heart that you have on the inside of you. I promise you, you do not want the truth of God without the grace of God. There is no situation where that works out in your favor. You do not want that. And yet, as we see, the problem of sin is real. You have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. The Bible says Jesus didn't come full of truth. And it doesn't say he came full of grace. It says he came full of grace and truth. As you read through this passage, you see a very, very real problem with sin. The second thing that I think you see as you look through the passage is that you see a problem with insensitivity. Insensitivity, specifically to the woman involved, right? Now, I'm not up here going to um, proclaim a, like, pro-feminism, burn your bras, equal rights. Like, I firmly believe that in God's sight, men and women are equal. But I'm here to tell you that in our culture, just like in the culture of Jesus, we have an insensitivity. Specifically, when you talk about sexual sin and women, we do not look at things on an even playing field. Think about it, right? In this story... The woman was caught in the act of adultery, right? The last time I checked, how many people does it take to commit the act of adultery? Two. So my question then is, where's the guy? Where's, where's the dude involved? Where's the other half of this adulterous situation? 
Many scholars will tell you that they actually believe that the man in the situation was actually one of the religious leaders that brought the woman to Jesus. That this entire thing was a sting operation. That they knew the woman was loose. They knew she was easy and so they set her up so that they knew one of them could get her into bed and when they did that they would have her and then that means they would have Jesus. So think about that in context of our culture. When you see a woman that sleeps around, right? A woman that has this sin issue. It is looked at very differently than if a man has this issue. If he sins in that way, right? The woman that sleeps around is a slut. She's a whore. She's easy. The guy that sleeps around, oh, he's just a player, you know. Yeah, he's sowing his wild oats, man. He's it's totally different. You see it in our world today, and I think you saw it here, but it doesn't just stop with sexual sin. We have an insensitivity to sin, period. Think about it. We love to look at the sin that other people have that we don't struggle with. It's much easier for me to look at you and say, you know what, you struggle with adultery and I don't, so I can look at your sin and it makes me feel better about myself because I'm insensitive to your sin. It happens all the time. We have people who sin, have the sin of addiction, right? And drugs and things like that have taken them over and yet how many of you, being honest with yourself, you know that you have looked at someone like that and you have looked down your nose thinking, man, how would you ever even get to that point? You believe that? can't believe they would like. And what you're doing is you're being insensitive because you don't sin the same way they do. Pastors love to get on stages like this and we love to, to preach sermons against greed and lust and unforgiveness. How many times have you heard a message preached on gluttony? Not a whole lot. You know why? Because most pastors in most churches, they like those cheeseburgers a whole lot, right? I like Papa John's. And so for us to get up and teach a message, listen, your body is the temple of God. You need to take care of it. If you're not working out, you're sinning, right? If you're being slothful and you're overeating, that's a sin. Hey, that's truth. But do you know why you don't hear that message? Because that makes me a hypocrite if I get up here and tell you that. And if I'm not doing the opposite, right? It is an insensitivity to sin because we love to look at the sin of others and never turn it around and look at the sin that we have in our own lives. We see it happening in the story of this bad girl. So we've got the problem of sin. We have the problem of insensitivity. And lastly, we have the problem of religion. And I promise you, it is a problem. It's a big problem. Think about it. Has it ever stood out to you that when these guys caught this woman sinning, there's no excuse for that part, she was sinning, but that they drug her to church to kill her? And that the guys that drug her into the church to kill her were the religious leaders? Scholars will tell you that the Pharisees, right, they have spent their entire life studying the law, studying the Old Testament. That's what they had at this time. 
Scholars will tell you that most of these gentlemen had the entire Old Testament memorized because knowledge, that's what made them better than you. That's what made them who they were. They were the religious leaders. So they had all the scriptures memorized that talk about the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. And here's the deal. They actually believed that all of those things applied to them, that they had received it. And yet the religious spirit had them looking down on this woman and they were unwilling to give her the same grace and the same love and the same mercy and the same forgiveness that they believed God had given them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is religion. And Jesus never came to set up a system of beliefs that would make you feel like you've done something because you went off and checked down a list of, I went to church, I worshiped, I gave a dollar in the plate prayed today. I'm good. That's religion. And I'm telling you, it is a problem because it separates us from what Jesus came to do. Religion was a problem in Jesus' day and it's a problem in ours. Now, it might look a little different. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees would have, would have worn robes and they would have had this fancy jewelry, necklaces, and they wore these weird hats, Right? You don't see that a whole lot today, but I think you've seen some Pharisees if you've been in the church for a long period of time. A lot of times, at least in my experience, it's, right, it can be the old group of ladies in the church that wear the denim skirts down to here and, right, they got the sweater vest with the embroidered pumpkin on the front that they got on sale at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and they love to get in their groups and talk about the other people. Do you believe what that girl had on in church today? Can't even believe she would walk in these doors looking like that, acting like that. I saw him smoking in the parking lot before he walked in. And I know what he was doing last night because I know his mama. And we were talk I mean, we were praying for him, but I know really what was going down. And I can't believe he would have the audacity to show up in church today. Maybe I'm the only one that's seen that. But what I'm here to tell you is that is a religious spirit that is poison to the true heart of God. It's poison, and there's a problem with it. It's not just that it's poison. Look at this. The writer of Isaiah tells us in chapter 64, he says, we are all infected and impure with sin. Now, when was the last time you had a good infection? Right? It doesn't happen. It tells us this. It says, when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. It says, like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Now, this passage of Scripture, this is where it gets like some church people feel uncomfortable, right? And I'm totally good with that because I like making church people feel uncomfortable. This portion of Scripture is a perfect example of the translators of the Bible cleaning things up a little bit because the original language was a little too harsh for them. As you read through this passage of Scripture, when it gets down to the part that says that your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, when you look at the original language, do you know what that word actually is? It's not filthy rags. This word is actually that when you display your righteous deeds, they are nothing but bloody menstrual cloths. That's the original language. That's what the Bible says. Those people that like to parade their religion and parade their holier-than-thou attitude, the Bible says that God looks at that spirit 
Those people who pretend they've got it together. And he says, listen, get your dirty tampon out of my face because I'm not impressed with your religious, over-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude. It makes him sick. And I think it's time for the church to step up and say, that makes me sick and I'm not going to put up with it. Religion is a problem. And it hurts people. The second thing I think we see, we see our problem. I think the next thing that we see as we read through this story is Jesus' passion. Jesus had a passion, y'all. And you know, if you're passionate about something, it consumes everything that you are. Like you wake up in the morning thinking about what you're passionate about. You go to sleep at night like thinking about that passion. And all those hours in the middle, everything that you do in the day, if you're passionate about something, that's what you give yourself to. Take a real quick look back at the story. As the people were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. This is they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, fine, you're right. It is what the law says. So let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. As we keep reading, it says, then he, Jesus stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. Now, as you look um, at history and you read through biblical scholars, there's a lot of different thoughts and attitudes about what Jesus was writing, right? Some people think he was going through probably writing the Ten Commandments, right, just to be a convicting thing for the people. Many people, I believe, personally, I'm in this camp, I think he was probably writing the names of the religious leaders. I think he started with the oldest. And maybe beside it, he was writing their sins. Maybe he was writing their mistress's names, right? And so every time he got to a new name, they dropped the stone because they didn't want Jesus to keep writing. People find it interesting to talk about what was Jesus writing, but maybe I'm the weird one, but I just, I'm much more interested and I just wonder, I, I want to know what G, finger Jesus was using when he was writing in the dust. Am I the only one? Like I got, so like, well, that's offensive. Right, listen, Jesus was the MVP of the league at offending religious people. He was the LeBron James of offending some Pharisees. And he wasn't going to have that religious spirit. And as he's writing, it says, When the accusers saw and heard what he was doing, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And it tells us, Jesus stood up again and said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus responds, well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. As we talk about Jesus's passion, I think there's two things we see Jesus was passionate about. The first thing was he was passionate about forgiveness. You see, God is a graceful God. He is a graceful, forgiving God. And I think we see that in John chapter 3. This is the message translation. It says, this is how much God loved the world, right? He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed, but that by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. It goes on and tells us that God didn't go to all this trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was, but that he came to help to put the world right again. 
See, Jesus was passionate about forgiveness. And so when he looked at this woman full of shame, full of disgrace, completely naked in front of an entire group of people, Jesus looked at her and he had compassion and his heart filled with love. And he said, I don't condemn you. I love you because God and Jesus is full of grace. But again, it doesn't stop there. You don't get to stop at grace. Because yes, while Jesus was passionate for forgiveness, Jesus was also passionate for repentance. And see, this is another one of those words that we don't like talking about in church today. Jesus didn't give this woman the grace card, the get out of free, hey, don't worry about it, babe. They don't condemn you, neither do I. You're good. He doesn't give her a grace card. He looks at her and he says, listen, daughter, I love you. I don't condemn you. You do not have to feel ashamed. You are forgiven, but he takes it one step further. What does he tell her at the end? He says, neither do I condemn you now. Go and sin no more. That's repentance. Jesus is passionate about a changed life. And I think there's some people here today that you need a life change because you're doing some things that you thought would get you to a place and all they're really doing, they're hurting you. They're hurting other people. And Jesus is here to tell you today, I forgive you, I love you, but you have to stop. You have to stop that relationship because it's not good for you. Some of y'all need to go home and pack up your things and leave today because you're living in a house and you're living in a relationship that you know is not honoring God and it's hurting people and it's hurting you. Some of you need to quit and stop some addictions, some bad habits. Some of you need to leave some friends like they are a bad habit. Change your phone number, change your email address, whatever you need to do. You just need to hear the word of God when he says, listen, I forgive you, but stop sinning. Jesus is passionate for forgiveness, but he's also passionate for repentance. So we see in this passage that there is a problem. It's a very real problem. We see that Jesus has passion towards us. And the third and most important, and if you don't hear anything else I've said all day, I want you to hear number three, and it's this. In this story, we see that Jesus' passion can overcome our problem every single time. All we have to do is ask him. As we started this this conversation today, I told you, chapter 8 begins, and it tells you that as everyone else went home, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. You see, in Scripture, the Mount of Olives is a very, very significant place. Jesus would retreat there often. The Garden of Gethsemane itself is found on the Mount of Olives, the place that Jesus would go the night before he was crucified. And in this story, the Bible is very clear to tell us that the night before this event happened, Jesus retreated to the Mount of Olives. Why? Here's what I believe. I think Jesus knew that the next day there was going to be a woman brought before him full of shame and sadness and grief, broken by the life that she had been living. 
I think he knew that the people were going to throw her before him. And I think Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I think he stayed up all night long praying for her because he knew that she was staying up all night doing something completely different. That he was interceding to God on her behalf because he's passionate about her. You say, well, Adam, that's a good story, but how does that... How does that play into my life? You see, I think there's some of you who are here today and Jesus knew that you were going to be in this house on this Sunday, in this service, and he knew the words that you were going to hear because he knows the life that you're living. He knows the problems and the sin that you find yourself in. And I think I can back it up in Scripture saying that Jesus spent all night last night And that even now, Jesus is praying for you. And that he's interceding for you. And that he's sending his Holy Spirit to you. Because he is passionate about your forgiveness. And that he is passionate about your repentance. That he wants to see you live the life that he said you could have. That you're not here by accident, you're not here by mistake, and that Jesus wants to encounter you in a real way today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, I just want to ask you a question. If you could hear God say anything to you today, in the sin that you find yourself in, the life that you're living, the struggles that you have, Jesus is here to tell you in his spirit I love you. I forgive you. I do not condemn you. You don't have to feel ashamed. You don't have to feel sad. He loves you. He forgives you. And he wants to see you turn from the life that you've been living towards the life that will bring you closer to him. That there is grace and truth available to you If you're here today and you would love nothing more than to hear Jesus say those words over you, I want you to raise your hand wherever you're at. I'm not coming down there. You're not coming up here. Nobody's coming to you, but I just want to pray for you. His hands all over. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. You see, you're not alone. Jesus is passionate for you. He died for you. God, I pray that everyone here would encounter your spirit, your power, and your love. God, in a way that maybe they never have before. God, that you would give us a fresh revelation of who you are. Who you truly are, God, not who a religious system has made you out to be. Move in power right now in this place, Jesus, that people would know that we're not condemned. that through your grace and your truth, God, that we find you and that we find a perfect relationship with you. God, move on every heart in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.